So, um, welcome to Faith. Most of you know that uh, this summer we had a, th- a three-month series on the, the book of First John, and First John talks a lot about love, love for God, and, and, and what that looks like in our lives as we walk through that. And, and uh, when we came to an end, uh, Pastor J- JB a couple weeks ago began a, a series we call it Love in Action. We're talking about love in action. What does love look like? What does it mean to love God? What does it look like in, in action? And what is, what is love for people? What does that look like in action? We're going to look at some narrative passages in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And this is a, when, we, when I saw that, that idea, I picked this passage because it's a passage I've always wanted to preach on because I love this passage. It's, as I heard the, the laughter as the passage was read. Uh, it's a great passage. But the series is Love in Action, and we're talking about um, a man who I believe loved God. And his name is Elijah. Okay, if you if you are if you're able, please stand as we read this portion. I'm going to reread just verses 36 to 40, which is going to be the main focus of my applications. First Kings 18, 36 through 40. I'm going to read 30. I'm going to read through 40. I hope it's up there. <laughs> okay. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. God's word. Let's pray. Father God, this is your holy word, Old Testament, your holy word. There are things here for us. Help us to see those things and to apply those things to our lives as we as we serve you in this day, in our, this generation, we'll give you thanks for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bell versus Jehovah. Jehovah, Yahweh, Jehovah. In this passage, we see a great competition between the prophets of Baal, the Canaanite deity, and the prophet Elijah who's representative of Jehovah, the God of Israel. Uh, the battle takes place at a place called Mount Carmel, east of the Sea of Galilee, near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, many people complain in our culture about uh, everybody winning a prize, everybody getting a trophy, everybody getting a plaque. Maybe if you're like me, you've complained about that sometimes. The thing is, we, we're not training our children to deal with failure. So when they lose a job or have a failed relationship or whatever, they can't cope, and they, go, they get destructive. Maybe they become suicidal, even homicidal. You know, there's some truth to that, but the deeper reality is that, that when we think about human beings, deep down, we really love competition, don't we? We love competition. Think of the popular TV shows of the last 10 years. <laughs> the Voice. Survivors, Apprentice, Bachelorette, what do they have in common? Competition. There's some winners and there's some losers. (laughs) For many years, in fact, the ratings say the most popular TV show in America right now on network television is NBC's Sunday Night Football. 
this most popular show. Sporting events are unscripted drama. They're live dramas that are played out right before our eyes. You see what has been called the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. <laughs> this week, I happened to watch the Washington Nationals experience for the first time in, in ever <laughs> the thrill of victory, <laughs> celebrating the baseball playoff of victory in the uh, National League playoffs. Uh, the, the fans from my hometown, Washington, are absolutely giddy. Washington, after, after getting close, very close for several years, is actually going to play in the World Series. Now, in Baltimore, you know, we do that every, every 20, 30 years. We play World Series, right? Right? The O's, you know. But this is the first time that a Washington baseball team has played in the World Series since 1933. Most of us were not born then. <laughs> do the math. 86 years. Now, I still don't watch baseball, but I had to watch that night. I could only think of my dad. My dad, uh, he loved baseball. He took me to many Washington baseball games, the Washington Senators, when I was a kid. And I can only think of him when I saw the celebration. I thought of my dad. <laughs> my dad never saw a Washington team win, <laughs> really win the ultimate uh, uh, playoff. Never saw a celebration like we just saw. I thought of my dad. Elijah is a prophet who loves the Lord. He loves Jehovah God. And that love has led him to proclaim truth, to proclaim mighty miracles for desperate people in, 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 second, in First Kings, and to issue a strong warning to powerful King Ahab of Israel, the backslidden leader of a backslidden people. Ahab's wife, Jezebel, would prove to be more of a challenge to Elijah. In the next chapter, chapter 19, you can see that. But Elijah's love for God moved him to action. He was empowered to make a difference in his generation. Elijah reminds us, though, of one greater than Elijah. Love for his father moved him to action. Wesley put it like this. He left his father's home above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love, and he bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love. How can it be? that thou, my God, should die for me. Elijah's love, his passion for God, his zeal for God is a small reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly loved God, perfectly loved his father. Uh, Jesus went to the temple in the Gospels and he saw the greedy money changers who were ripping off the people and he cried out this in John chapter 2, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or commerce. And his disciples remembered, John says, that it was written, in, you know, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had a zeal for the house of God, for the things of God, for the kingdom of God. This zeal, this passion, this love for God is what we're talking about. We see it in Elijah. What I want us to go, go away with this. Love for God should move us to action. Love for God should move us to real concrete action in this world, the world in which we live. Elijah is a fiery prophet. When you look at the, the, the verses, the passages about him, he had unrivaled zeal. And we see his intense emotion in today's passage. Now, our city and our nation lost another man, a man named Elijah, another man named Elijah, Elijah Cummings, this past week. It was amazing. I woke up the other morning and said, wait a minute, I'm preaching on Elijah, and Elijah Cummings just passed. He, he, he was appropriate... <laughs> named by his parents who were believers. 
They, they were sharecroppers in the South, but they moved to Baltimore in the 40s, stake our life here. Hearing so many of those comments about Elijah Cummings' life and his character and his personality, I, I was so much reminded about Elijah the prophet. Elijah the, the Old Testament prophet. Cummings was a member of, of New Psalmist Baptist Church on the west side, down the west side, for 40 years. That's where the funeral will be on Friday. He saw his political position as a task given to him by God. And he was not afraid to say that. He was fiery, passionate. He had a zeal for truth, courageously, fearlessly challenging those in power. He was focused. He was fearless. Though, like all of us, he was flawed. Cummings was very similar to this Hebrew prophet, you see who, of course, was also flawed. We'll see that in the, in the text. Now, now, we should mention his obvious flaw right here in chapter 19, where, where this courageous man, he, he kind of wimped out when Queen Jezebel sent out a tweet. <laughs> he shriveled up like a, like a little puppy. That's in chapter 19, an interesting chapter. But by and large... Elijah was a great, mighty prophet who undoubtedly has a deep love for God. How do we know? Well, by his words and by his deeds, which we see in the scriptures from 1 Kings 17 all the way to the portions of 2 Kings. I want, I want to look at the, I'm going to look at the story again, review the story, but then I've got three applications. We'll take, we want to make sure we understand this incredible story. And if the story, there's five movements to the story. The first movement, I call it the, on, the ongoing challenge of Baal. The ongoing challenge of, of Baal, the god of the Canaanites. He's a, you know, one commentator talks about this. Elijah lived during the 20-year reign of, of Ahab, King, King Ahab, the son of Omri. He was uh, 800-plus years before Christ, 854 to 873. He, he, with the help of his wife, Jezebel, he continued his father's politically motivated uh, idolatry. He was politically motivated, this, idol this connection to, to, to the, the people of the Canaan. All the citizens were to worship the idols of Baal instead of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Quote, the worshipers of the true God were persecuted with fire and sword. Idols and temples were everywhere. Evil times were all over the land. In every direction were built gloomy idols and temples. There's clearly compromise among God's people going on here in Israel, the northern kingdom. Commentary says, after the, the death of Joshua, the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth became a plague upon the Israelites and was a perennial problem. Baal, also known as the sun god or the storm god, is the name of the supreme male deity worshipped by ancient Phoenicians and Canaanites. Asherah, the moon goddess, was the principal female deity worshipped by ancient Syrians, Phoenicians, and Canaanites. The Israelites neglected to heed the Lord's warning not to compromise with idolaters. The ensuing generations after Joshua forgot the God who had rescued them from Egypt. The ongoing challenge of Baal. He says, Ahab said, you're a troubler of Israel. And, 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 and Elijah comes back, no, no, you're the troubler of Israel. You, Ahab, are the troubler of Israel. The second movement is, is, is the verbal challenge by Elijah, verses 19 to 25. There's a verbal challenge. Look at verse 19. First, he sends and gathers all of Israel to Mount Carmel. And, and, and uh, 
He sent to all the people of Israel, verse 20, and gathered the prophets together. And, and, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Here's his challenge. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That's his challenge. The people didn't answer him a word. <laughs> Look at what's going on. You have, uh, there are 400 plus 450. There's, there's 450 false prophets, okay? Uh, those aren't good odds, are they? <laughs> he, he challenges the people, stop limping between two opinions. Stop being double-minded, would say in the New Testament. Looks very lopsided, the, the odds here, don't they? A few weeks ago, my, my team, the Washington Redskins, played the New England Patriots, and you know what happened. In fact, we knew what was going to happen before the game. We were crushed. Very lopsided battle. This battle here between Baal and Jehovah is more lopsided than that battle. But nobody knows it. Nobody knows it yet. By the way, you know, here in the text we saw that uh, he says, I'm the only one in verse 22. I, I, even I only am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets were 450 men. He was wrong, but in one sense, he was also right when we think about it. Okay, he was, he was wrong. We find out in the next chapter that, that, that God had, had other prophets, other people who were being true and faithful to him. So in, in that sense, he was wrong. But you know what? Deep down, Elijah knew that it was just him. But he also knew that it wasn't just him. <laughs> he knew that it was him plus Jehovah. And he understood that it's if you and Jehovah, you're going to win. He understands that. Do we understand that? Do you understand that Romans says that if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what the scriptures say. See, divine mathematics look different than, than human mathematics. Amen? <laughs> so the test was simple. Each group was to, 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 to get a bull and put it on the altar, sacrifice it. But, you know, you, you prepare it. But, but instead of lighting it, you would cry to your God, ask your God to send fire to light it. The God who answered with fire would be the real God. That was the, that was the, that was the battle. Now, Jehovah, you know, the, the, the God of, of, of the Canaanites was known as the fire God, the storm God. Jehovah was known as the God who rescued weak, low-life Hebrew slaves. So in one sense, you could say that uh, the prophets of Baal had an advantage. They had a home field advantage, you might want to call it. <laughs> they were there on that Canaanite coast, which was their territory. They had a lot of advantages. And yet, though they had the advantage, they deferred. And Elijah said, you go first. You go first. So then the next movement is the futile behavior of Baal's prophets, verses 26 to 29. So they call on Baal, their God, and there's no response. The wasted words from morning to noon and from noon into the afternoon and nothing, nothing at all. We see, we saw in the, in the, in the reading, the response of reading, the folly of idolatry, creating an image and worshiping it as if it's your God. Idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They, they have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell, hands but don't feel, feet but don't walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. But the contrast, Israel, trust in the Lord, your help, your shield. 
So the battle goes on, and we see Elijah's confidence. In fact, he starts trash talking in verse 27. Did you notice that? He says, at noon and nothing has happened as these prophets are pleading for their God. And so he begins to get very confident. He says, what's wrong with your God? Is he, is he musing? Is he meditating? Does he, do you have a God who has to think and, and think about stuff before he does it? Is he relieving himself? <laughs> you have a God who has to go through that kind of human process. Is he on a journey? Maybe a business trip or vacation. What, kind of, what, what, what is your God have to take vacations? Is he tired of being God? Is he so tired? Maybe your God's asleep. You see the mocking the, 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 that goes on here. I'm not sure God told him to do that. I think we see something of Elijah here, this dramatic man. But we see the futile attempts by, by the prophets of Baal in verse 28. They figure may, maybe if we cut ourselves in this blood, then our God will hear us. So they do that. Pagans do that often. They have this idea that the gods delight in blood and sacrificing of people, of women and children to, to appease them. The, the Mayans of the Western Hemisphere, they did that. The, the, the God, in, in the scriptures, uh, the people, the Molech, the god of the Babylonians, child sacrifice was a very prominent part of their religion. We, two weeks ago when Pastor J.B. talked about uh, Genesis 22 and Isaac, that whole uh, encounter, as God told Abraham to go take your son, your only son, to, to Mount Moriah. And he's thinking, I didn't know God was that kind of a God, just like these other gods. But no, <laughs> at the last moment, God says, no, 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 I'm not like those other gods. There's a ram in the corner, go get it. And there was a substitute, a substitute to, to, to bring blood to appease God. See, our God doesn't ask us to sacrifice our sons for him. Our God sacrificed his son for us. That's our God. It's not about how much blood you can, you, can, you can bring out. It's whose blood is being brought out. Hebrews says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The blood of Christ is our sufficiency. Well, the fourth movement here in this drama is, is the dramatic behavior of Elijah in verses 30 to 37. So, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's his turn as the others have failed, the other prophets have failed, and it's his turn. And before he, he, he says, bring 12 stones. The, the altar was all messed up. He had to repair the altar. And uh, then he says, uh, build a trench. He built a, dig, dig this trench around the altar, verse 32. He said, get, get water, get four jars of water for, for this trench. And so they, they, they bring water, and he says, do it again, and do it again. So you've got 12 jars of water. So you got 12 stones, and you got 12 jars of water. And the text gives us a, a, a hint here. It says, it's, it's all about Israel. It's reminding them of who they are. You are Israel. You are the people of God. And so, it reminds me of, uh, I mean, the, the, the ridiculousness of this reminds me of, you know, you're out in the backyard, you're trying to grill, and, and you realize you got, you got the grill, and you got, you got the meat, and, and you got the charcoal, but you don't have any lighter fluid. Well, that's okay. I'll just put water on it. 
Now, water will help it ignite. That doesn't work, by the way. Water will do the exact opposite. So what is, what is Elijah doing here? What is he doing? <laughs> he's making it harder, humanly speaking. In essence, here's what he's saying to them. It doesn't matter how wet or dry this altar is. My God's going to bring some fire down. That's what he's saying. So, so, so in, in verse 36, uh, when things are set up, it's a time of the, the, the offering of the oblation. So it's, by, it's three in the afternoon. He says, let it be known that the Lord is God of Israel. And that Elijah is his prophet. And this is done at the Lord's word. That verse is interesting. I would challenge two of those things. <laughs> I, I'm not sure the big issue was that Elijah was a prophet. I don't think that's why God answered that prayer. And I'm not even sure that, that he had a word specifically from the Lord to do this. This may have been Elijah and his drama. I don't know. It, he may, maybe the Lord told him that and we don't know. But I do know this, <laughs> that, that because he set it up as this will be proof that the Lord is God, God answered his prayer. God answered his simple prayer. And that's the, 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 the fifth movement here in the drama, verse 38 to 40. Let me read it. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. Now, look, when they saw it, they didn't say, wow, Elijah, you are a servant of the Lord. They didn't say that. <laughs> they didn't say, wow, this is what Elijah did. That's a bad dude over there. No. What did they do when they saw what happened? They fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. You got to understand, you have the prophets of Baal and you have the people and you have Elijah. So the people, not the leaders, the prophets. He says, seize the prophets, let not one of them escape. They seized them. So the leaders are held accountable. Not the people, but the leaders are held accountable. Leaders always have the greater responsibility in God's kingdom. There's an important lesson there. Important lesson. We'll look at that principle in a second. Okay. There's three lessons I want us to see in this story. Three things I want, I want us to draw. One is that, indeed, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Oh, that's a, that's a profound statement. Yes, it is. The Lord is God. He's God. Second, the Lord is a heart fixer. And third, the Lord is on a mission. He's on a mission. First, the Lord is God and not Baal. There's no external thing or creature that is God. The Lord Jehovah is God. Baal is a false god. Canaanite religion was very attractive, you know. That a fertility call to the asteroid. We saw we talked we saw that earlier, which had an immorality involved in it. The, the carnal drives were easily aroused uh, by their entanglement with Canaanite people in the land. You can read about, you read, read Leviticus chapter 18 and 19 and 20. You see the dangers of immorality that they were warned about by God in the land they were going to. Joshua, it says in chapter 24, verse 15, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The Lord is God, not 
Baal. There's no external. And of course, the place of God. That's what an idol is. It could be something that external that you craft. It could be some value. The God, the idols of our world. We don't, at least most Americans don't have things, tangibly material things, that they can actually say, I'm worshiping that thing. Our, our, our idols are more subtle. But anything that you put ahead of God becomes your idol. Which is my second part of this. Uh, the, the Lord is God, not Baal. The Lord is God, not me. The Lord is God, not me. This is where it gets even more hard for us. <laughs> because we want to be God. We want to put ourselves first. We want to put ourselves above everything else. And you know what? Our world tells us that that's the way we're supposed to live. Right? That's what our world says. Put yourself first. You know, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, Just as you receive Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Walk in Jesus. Jesus is our example. Yes, he is. But he's more than our example. Jesus is Jehovah, our healer. But he's more than a healer. He's our deliverer. Yes, he is. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Yes, he is. Jesus is the savior of sinners. He's all that plus. He's Lord. And you receive Jesus as Lord. That has implications on how we live. If we believe he's master. That he's the one with all authority. That he's the one who calls the shots for us. That's, see, repentance is saying... I shouldn't have called the shots for myself. Following Christ in faith is saying, I now let you call the shots in my life. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's the Lord. If he's Lord, then we are subject to his authority, to his will. To live according to his pleasure. You know, Psalm 100 is a great, very good psalm. Psalm of worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. It's a song of great worship. Verse 3. Know that the Lord is God. Know that he's God. It is he who made us. And not we ourselves. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. That's a simple, profound truth. But, it, but we never get beyond those, that truth. That God is God. And, and we are his people. We're to submit to him. You know, question. Are you living with a deep, settled conviction that Jesus Christ is your Lord? Is that, is that, is that, a, is that a deep conviction for you? That he's the son of God. That if you've trusted in him, that, that, then you know that he loves you unconditionally. And that he's worthy of your worship. Worthy of your obedience. Worthy of daily obedience. You know, most of you know I grew up in a, in a traditional uh, uh, black Baptist church. And, and, and I confess that there was a time in my life when I kind of, I didn't appreciate all that I learned there in that, those foundational years. I kind of rejected some of that. I said, that some things were not as clear as I learned, as I, as I later found out they could have been in that church. But you know what? That place laid a great foundation for me. <laughs> I, I learned the simple truths that, that God is God. That no matter what's going on in your life, trust God. God is God. He's Lord. You can trust him. I learned that Jesus is his son who died on the cross for your sins. I learned that the Holy Spirit is there to enable you and help you to live in this crazy world. 
I didn't learn, you know, I, I, I grew dramatically in my faith in my college years in university. But I got those basic foundations at that black Baptist church. Because we never get beyond that basic, this basic truth that the Lord is God. And is he our God? You see, because once we understand that truth, tests begin to come. Do we really believe that truth? That's what happens in our lives. I, 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 became, I got saved at age 12 and, and through my teenage years. Date, in the dating world, did I trust God? After college, did I, when I was looking for looking at the job world, did I, did I trust God on the, for, for, for the job? For me, full-time minister, it, it meant for support. But for you, on your job, there's issues of trust that come up each day. In your marriage, if you're married, reality sets in. Do you trust God or do you just say you trust God? Is God God? When children come, and life gets even more complicated if, if, you're, if you have children. When a loved one passes away, do you trust God through that experience? When the doctor comes with a report and he's not smiling, do we trust God? Do we trust him? Is he still God? All these moments are simple tests for us. Do I trust him or do I just say I do? Do I really love him or do I just say I love him? God, God, the Lord is God. He is our God. The second thing is that he is a heart fixer. Look at this. this verse 37 is interesting. It says he turns hearts back. He's got, and he turns hearts back. The, the word is, it turns backwards. It's a turnaround issue there, which brings to mind repentance. And, but the point that Elijah wants them to know is that they've been, they're God's people. They have walked away from God. They're backslidden away from God. But God can bring them, God's the one who brings them back. When you come back, know that God was the one who gave you the desire and instinct to do that. This is important. That, that uh, we, you know, when we, finally come to our senses and come back to the Lord like the prodigal did, that is because God is at work. That's God's, that's God's work, not just a human uh, effort of smart people. You know, if, we, if it was just up to us as smart people, we wouldn't turn to God. This is why we, you know, we, we talk about the sovereignty of God and, and God's grace coming to us. Ezekiel chapter 36. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's chapter 36. You know, chapter 37, he's saying about this. There is the valley of dry bones, <laughs> where the bones, uh, which were dead, began to have life. Life was poured into them, and they began to walk in that graveyard. God is the one who does those kind of, God is the one who instigates these things. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God quickened you. God made you alive. Even salvation is the work of God. God is the one who fixes hearts as we believe in him. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good on two fronts. By faith in Christ, we are given a new record that our sins are forgiven. That's good news. Also by faith, we're given a new heart. The Holy Spirit dwells among us. That is also good news. The Lord is a heart fixer, a heart changer, a heart transformer. The third and last application here 
is that this Lord is on a mission. He's on a mission. Now, where do I see that? I said I'd come back to verse 40. Verse 40 is quite interesting. As we saw at the end of this, he says, get the prophets and slaughter them. Some of us don't like that. That looks awkward to us, doesn't it? Let's talk about that. In the Old Testament era, Israel, a nation, God's people were a nation. They were commanded to eradicate or get rid of paganism. That was part of what they were, their calling was as a people. And they had several ways in which God called them at various times to do it. One way was through conquest. Conquer the people. Conquer them. Go into nations and have warfare. You would conquer them. Some of, sometimes the second way is go and, and, and kill the people. Go kill. Why? Again, that, that's, that's hard. It's hard for us to hear that. But, but God has his ways, and, and, and for some reason, God said, these people are a danger to the rest of humanity. They need to go. So conquering and killing. But there was another way in which they were to get rid of paganism. Conversion. Conversion. They didn't do much of that. <laughs> they didn't do much. I mean, God told them to be careful, to, to, to be generous to the, to the, to the, the foreigners who came among them. And, and, to be, and they did some of that. But just think about the book of Jonah. How the idea of, 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 of turning pagans around through conversion was not on Jonah's radar at all. Jonah had one thing on his radar. God wants to get rid of those people. I don't like those people. No. That's Old Testament. New Testament. Do, do we expand the kingdom? Do we get rid of paganism through conquest? Well, no. We don't. The New Testament church doesn't have territory in that sense. We're not a nation like Israel was. Do we eradicate paganism through killing? Well, obviously no. Jesus said, put away your sword. Do we eradicate paganism through conversion? Absolutely. Absolutely. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature, and I'm with you to the end of the age. I love the slogan of Charles Stanley's ministry, In Touch. He says that we're to be a people who have a passion for God and a compassion for people. A passion for God and a compassion for people. So we're not called to go and slaughter false prophets. It's not our calling. We do deeds of love, justice, and mercy in the world, spreading the kingdom. Dr. Howard Hendricks, uh, in his great book, The Battle of the Gods, on this passage, uh, not only was Elijah convinced of the reality of Jehovah, he was also convinced that he was a representative of the living God. It's still true, as in Elijah's time, that God is looking for one man, one woman, who will become his personal representative. Behind the pulpit, certainly. In the classroom at a Bible school, by all means. Through varied forms of Christian work, to be sure. But also... In communities, in homes, in offices, in shops, on university and college campuses, in high school campuses, where people who are blind to the glories of our Christ see him incarnate in you, his personal representatives. God is on a mission. The Lord is on a mission. Now, none of us can perfectly love God. Elijah didn't perfectly love God. None of us has perfect zeal, perfect passion for God. And again, that's why we need to be reminded that, that Jesus Christ has loved God perfectly. Amen? By faith, if you are in Christ, he gives you his perfect record. He gives you his powerful spirit. We love him because he first loved us. His zeal 
led him to die on a cross that, he, that you might be forgiven and that you might be his representative on, our, on earth. Let me close with a story of a, of a singer. His name is Al Green. He was born in 1946 in a religious home, very religious home. At age 10, he and his brothers started singing religious songs. That was cool. But he also liked some songs by dudes named Jackie Wilson, Wilson Pickett, Elvis Presley, Sam Cooke, and was singing them kind of songs. His parents said, no, no, we don't do that in our house. We don't sing them kind of songs around here. Well, he kept doing it. His parents kicked him out of the house as a teenager. He went on and became a hit in the music business, became very famous in the music business. Some pictures here, I thought we saw pictures there. Let's stay together. Tired of being alone. Love and happiness. Some of you might, if you're old enough as me, you remember those songs. Something happened to him in the 70s, though. He had a lot of personal struggles. And he covered a song by the Bee Gees, by the Gibbs brothers, that began, that opened up the struggle that was going on the inside to the world. Here's, here's the lyrics of that song. I can think of younger days when living for my life was everything a man would want to do, could want to do. I could never see tomorrow. But I was never told about the sorrow. How can you mend a broken heart? How can you stop the rain from falling down? How can you stop the sun from shining? What makes the world go round? This man's crying out. I can still feel the breeze that rustles through the trees and misty memories of days gone by. We could never see tomorrow. No one said a word about the sorrow. How can you mend this this broken man. How can a loser ever win? Please help me mend my broken heart. Let me live again. He knew that this, in this competitive world, he felt like a loser. He was rich and famous, but he felt like a loser. And so Al Green found the answer. We know him now as Reverend Al Green. He became a pastor. He went back to his faith, those roots that he, that he had discarded. He discovered that the Lord God is a heart fixer. That the Lord was his God. The Lord his God was a heart fixer. A heart mender. A heart transformer. How can a loser ever win? Never in their own strength. But our God delights, specializes in turning losers into winners. Amen? Amen? Have you come to know this God? Have you come to know this God? Is his love for you? Is his love through you making a difference in your actions, in your world? Let's pray. Father, we, we gather today as, as people who need you daily. And we need the gospel daily. And we rejoice that we have the gospel each day. Filling our hearts, reminding us of who we are and who you are in this world. Lord, I would pray for anyone here who's struggling with things in their life. Lord, who, who maybe have come to a point in their lives where they need to, to afresh know that you are their God. You'll take care of them. You are their God. You are transforming them. You are their God. You are forgiving them. 
But I pray that this word would go deep in our hearts because indeed these are days in which we need people who know their God and are representatives of this God in the world to make a difference. Lord, do your work. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.